listening to The Jim Laird Show on Body IO FM, where health and performance collide with your host, Jim Laird. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Jim Laird Show brought to you by Body IO FM. And as always, please support Kiefer so I can continue to do this show. Thank you for joining us today. Today I have a, I do another actual in-person interview, which is always uh, I like much better than doing over Skype, actually. I've got Dr. Tim Rogers with me, and I, I've known Tim for a number of years, and, and Tim and I are um, kind of those people that end up hanging out for five minutes and talk for two and a half, three hours. So... You know, hopefully that'll that'll carry over to today. And the reason I wanted to have Tim on the show is Tim has a very interesting approach. He has a really good story about how he found his purpose in life, um, and he also has a really good perspective on health, uh, pain management, uh, stress management, and he also works with a lacrosse uh, team with athletic development. He has a really interesting. Uh, approach to how he develops his athletes, which I wanted him to get on here and, and talk about. So thank you for joining us today, Tim. And um, why don't we start with giving a little bit of your history and how you got into doing what you're doing right now. Hey, thanks a lot, uh, Jim. Appreciate you having me here. Um, as you, you probably know that we can talk for hours and hours about stuff. So if I run too long or something, just jump in and cut me off. Um, but uh, how did I get involved? In, in doing what I do or some of my backstory, I think you can pretty much say that my first experience in sports was completely defective. Um, I literally learned how to swim by the total immersion method. And um, you know, my old man was a, a Navy guy, so didn't have a whole lot of patience for try you know the softer side of things. And so when I was a kid about seven years old, First, my very first time in the pool, I was thrown in with a bunch of kids that already knew how to swim. And when I came to the side of the pool, you know, screaming, he'd pick me up and drop me back in. And then the John, uh, the John Wayne approach. The John Wayne approach, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And then he put a cigarette out on my arm, and then, and then I became a man, but uh, something like that. But uh, I think that was the first imprinting on my mind of um, fight or flight. I had to do it to survive. And Years later, after I stopped uh, competing in swimming when I was in college, I couldn't get back in the pool for another 10 years. I just couldn't do it. I was throwing up in the gutters and, because I really hated it. I realized that I had been really running for my life and told that I had to keep swimming because that's how I was going to get money for college. So um, I guess, you know, not to grab too much of my personal stuff, but I could tell you my first experience with brain injury happened when that same person in my life, my old man, um, bonked his head on some black ice and lost his memory. Literally went into four days of I don't know who you are and was in the hospital and years later would tell me that he tricked the doctors on how to get out of there because he used to had a photographic memory and could memorize a newspaper and he would tell current events based on what he'd read just before the doctors got in there. And uh, very swiftly after that, he was a totally changed person. Personality-wise, uh, mood, affect, everything related to us. And then eventually that led to you know me pretty much being on my own as a kid. 
And because of that, I just decided I wanted to just do something I really enjoyed. And friends of mine, uh, because of my dad's military background, he thought I should go to a private high school. And I did. I went to a private high school that was geared towards the Naval Academy, oddly enough. And they had a lacrosse team that was just developing. And the guys that were making up this team were a bunch of ragtag. We had, we had wrestlers, we had soccer players, we had anybody who just wanted to get out there and mash it up. A body. <laughs> Absolutely. And the first year, I lied to my parents because they were like, we're not going to support that. You have to swim, swim, swim. So I went and grabbed dumpster dove and grabbed hockey helmets and hockey pads and a curtain rod and put a stick head on it. I wanted to play so badly because I wanted to be part of a team. And I, I knew I just loved it. I fell in love with it, and I didn't care how it was going to look. It was just I was out there with them mashing it up. Until one day uh, they discovered I was actually doing it and came to their senses and said, well, before you kill yourself, we might as well get you some decent gear. And then because of that, I started saving my money and going to lacrosse camps. And I grew up in my adolescent years. I grew up in, in Maryland, so they were all over the place. But luckily enough, I had access to the University of Maryland. And they put on some fantastic uh, camps, and I learned very quickly the best way to get better was to play with people way better than you. And uh, to the point where I think I became overconfident. So my second exposure to brain injury uh, followed after one of those summers, and I was told to go get the goalie, and I had no context for that at all. So you've probably seen the you know two rams butting heads. And that's exactly what it was. And um, luckily for me, later, you know, knowing what I know now, luckily for me, due to swimming, I was so flexible because had I not had that ligament flexibility, I probably would have broken my neck. And the crunch and the crack and everything was so resounding, I could hear it, you know, bouncing around in my helmet. We used to call them buckets then. And I lost days uh, after that. And um, from that point on, I went from being a straight A student on track to go towards the Naval Academy. I was going through all the interviewing processes and stuff. And uh, I was barely passing my grades at that point. And um, my parents were scratching their head wondering what the heck happened to them. And everything changed. My personality changed. My The, the way I felt about me, my depression, I developed a deep sense of depression. Uh, I even think that's when I started beginning to drink uh, with my friends and saw that that was my way to find normal. At least it took some of the edge off of the, you know, the, the pain, number one, uh, and the fact that I just I couldn't focus and I just felt like I I needed to drop out and do something else. And uh, barely getting out of out of high school, you would think your parents would see that and say there's a problem here, but because the swimming money isn't going to be there forever, so I bumped up to college and ended up with a 1.1 my, my first semester and uh, did so well at that they granted me academic discipline and therefore I had to pull up my grades in order to stay in the school and uh, the swimming was great and neurologically speaking I can understand why because when you were spending hours doing cross-crawl activities you're firing these central processing neurons and lighting your brain up like the 4th of July. The problem is is when you're not swimming anymore that that input is gone and so you're falling asleep when you're studying and your eyes are crossing and you have headaches that come on at two o'clock every day and you have 
just a, a total dimmer switch on your humanity, not realizing that you're, you are alone in many ways. And a lot of people can't understand that when they see somebody like that and they're like, oh, just take a nap or oh, just get some coffee. And coffee has the reverse effect on me. If I have too much, it actually knocks me out. And um, I was struggling with that for a very, very long time and started back with playing club lacrosse and walked onto a team and had a sensational first year, but the second year I got my second concussion. And, man, you want to talk about, you know, just being in the shit. I just lost, I would say, weeks of information. I can't even remember it. I remember when you interviewed Chris and you talked about the IED coming up through the, you know, through the truck, through the Humvee, and he doesn't remember it. Right. And he remembers what people told him about it, and that's exactly what it was like. You know, that moment of impact, all I saw was white light, and that was it. And I woke up on the sideline and was, you know, totally deranged after that for a long, long, long time. I lost the hair on my head very shortly after that. And if you look at the genetics, you know, the Y chromosome is, does not give any trait for hair. So I've got Eddie Munsters on my mom's side, you know, the, the, the hair line that knits with the eyebrows, and not a single person who has, who's bald. And within a year of that last second impact, I lost my hair, and therefore, you know, at the time I was 24. So you start getting self-esteem issues related to that. Even, Even though it's the best way to go anyways. I mean, shaved heads, yeah. you might as well. It's just the way to go. You know, aerodynamic, you yeah. know. And uh, my wife will tell you that's probably the reason why we're together, because she found it pretty hot. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if there's an upside, there's an upside. Absolutely. There's an upside to just about everything. <laughs> so, you know, all, these, all this dysfunction, you know, was kind of like the perfect brew for just wanting to drop out. And I don't tell a whole lot of people this, but I think I should say it now, because I, I think it'll help somebody understand the mind of somebody who's really badly banged up. You know, there's a moment in my life where I just started questioning what my purpose was. You know, I'm just going to die anyway. You know, here I am barely slogging along. I can't feel my right hand. Um, I'm losing my hair. I'm 24 years old and I'm depressed and I'm alcoholic and I've got all these other issues tied up in this young body. And everybody's looking at me saying, man, what's your problem? Right. You know, and uh, a failed attempt at, at killing myself with uh, booze and pills. I just bottomed out, totally bottomed out, and just really, really doubted whether or not I had any positive value on the planet. And uh, luckily for uh, my mom kind of reaching out and pulling me back in and saying, hey, man, you know, you got to get it together and get back into school and finish. Um, you know, I don't care what the degree is in, but you've got to be around people that are up and, you know, doing good things. And she was right, because I met so many great people when I was at West Virginia. It wasn't my favorite school, it wasn't my first choice, but it was where you go, you know, when they'll accept you. Right. With very, you know, likelihood that you could bomb again. And um, I had a sister who was there at the time, and so it was good because she could she kind of keep an eye on me. And I did okay, I did okay. And I'll tell you, I bounced around discovering that I couldn't really function on the pre-med level like I was going. I couldn't do the chemistries, the biologies, the calculus. All the analytical thought was boom, gone. I just couldn't connect it, couldn't connect the dots. And what I could do was I could create and I could draw and I could make graphic representations of things. So I ended up finally after bouncing around six different majors, I ended up with advertising copywriting 
and did a lot of the graphics myself. And if I could do something in five words or less, it was good. But if I had to write much longer than that, it was, you know, bonk city. So I graduated with a degree in something I couldn't do anything with. And um, at the time, I thought so anyway. And I've used it. You know, believe me, anyone who says that doesn't understand the application. They, they have context now for applying that throughout their lives. Sure. Um, but uh, six years after that second concussion, I dealt with um, just the, the insomnia. Then anytime I tried to do something that was cerebral, I would fall asleep. You know, the depression that I was managing with things like if I wasn't exercising, I was drinking. So that whole, you know, juggernaut. Got to get your dopamine. Got to get your dopamine, <laughs> exactly. I know uh, all about that. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, like we can laugh about it now, right? And it was, it's still a challenge, you know, because I don't think you ever really truly, you know, get over it when you realize that there, you know, what happens to the brain when you have that first impact, there's a moment of hypoxia, okay? And you can lose oxygen in your muscle cells and work your way through it. The blood supply will eventually return and flood it with oxygen and you swap out carbon dioxide and lactic acid and blah, blah, blah. But the brain doesn't work that way. Because when you bonk the brain and it goes anaerobic for even a moment, you start losing the predictability of how your neurons are going to fire. And dumping massive amounts of calcium in the, in the neuron and just, it's like loading a gun and then squeezing the trigger. And it's up to the rest of the neurons in that batch whether they can handle it. And if those neurons are hypoxic too, they just, they die. And so we lose pools of neurons, tens of thousands at a time. And so your brain becomes drastically changed. Changed. I mean, have you ever seen the slices of Junior Seau's brain? I have not, There's but a, I could only imagine. Oh, it's, it's amazing. They were, and National Geographic a few years ago posted a side-by-side -side pictorial of his brain slices after he shot himself in the chest. And... A brain of someone who's severe, severely having Alzheimer issues, and they're almost identical. Wow! Those it looks like someone took a gun and just shot holes in his brain because yeah. of all the scar tissue that was left from the neurons. Uh, Chris Benoit was actually a pretty decent friend of mine, and I imagine he'd be in the same in the same category. The professional wrestler that killed yeah. his wife and his kid and then killed himself. Yeah, I mean, you you're talking about you know a brain that becomes severely unpredictable, and so you know. It could be one minute you're, you're living a life as somebody who's very polar opposite from one moment to the next or just is in the dumps and can't pull themselves out no matter what they do. You know, the right. Tony Robbins stuff, Just I did all that. I did all the positive affirmation stuff. I sold books door to door thinking it was going to feed to me, right. you know, this new life. Is trauma, is trauma the only way you can get like that or... Is there other ways that people can get like that, either through excessive stress or is, is trauma pretty much the only way that, that can happen or is there other things that can cause cause these sort of things? Well, think of stress like a wheel, right? So um, every, there's so many spokes that lead to the center. And so micro and macro traumas all do the same thing. And so what you're, what you're looking at is what is your background posture? Let's say stress, for instance, like cortisol. The very first time you have a stressful response, it's like going through a jungle with a machete. And once your brain goes down that pathway enough times, the pathway gets wider and wider and wider and becomes way more efficient. So you need less stimulus in order to feed that same response. And so someone cuts somebody off in traffic and their heart rate goes up and their vasomotor tone increases and they start screaming and cussing and flipping off and hitting the horn. Like for a 
someone just cut me off, but I, I'm okay. Uh-huh. It's not the end of the world. Well, those types of rage responses are an inability for the primal brain to be adapted. And it's because that's what's driving that nervous system because of all the previous contextual things. So somebody could have come from a very stressful life as a kid, maybe told that they were never loved, or, you know, or you know, just in a nurturing sense, and they have the brain of somebody who's four years old. Right. And they're just grasping for what's going to make them feel good. Right. And so, you know, like for instance, my situation with my old man, I could tell you, you know, there's a hole there. And over time, it's not as, as sharp as it was, but it's, it's still there. But the further you get away from it, the more, the newer tracks that you can lay down, the newer behaviors you can create, pull you further away. You can't undo that. Right. But you can move towards these things. So someone who's hypoxic every single day of their life by sitting at a desk, it can be just as affected as somebody who is you know, bluntly traumatized because all day long they're dealing with a lack of oxygen saturation. And yes. their brain is going, feed me. That makes sense. That yeah. makes total sense. Anyway, I took uh, one of the things, you know, kind of fast forward to my chiropractic experience. I knew that there were so many pieces to this story that I was studying like voraciously to figure out why my brain was the way it was. And I took this, um, uh, this diplomate program in chiropractic neurology. It's about 300 hours of study and all that stuff. And it's just absolutely mind-blowing what they know now compared to what they knew when I had my first trauma. And then every year now, there's a massive jump in what they know. Like, for instance, the microglia of your brain. It's kind of like the cytoarchitecture of your brain. They're the, neuron, they're, they're the cells that are on the job before the neurons actually start becoming brain and become the architecture. Well, they have a physiological function, too. They're actually memory cells. So when there's a weird thing happening, like there's a quasi-functioning neuron, it flags it. It actually tags that thing for removal and says, okay, phagocytes, come in here and rip it out. And it does, and it causes a massive reaction. And it rips that out and anything it's connected to. Hmm. So we have this this overwhelming amount of, um, you know, of, of response, and it lasts three to four months. Well, they didn't know that five years ago. Wow. They just thought, you know, like the NFHS guidelines for concussion would be, okay, two weeks, if you're asymptomatic and you can move without pain, you can start training again. Well, oh, by the way, if you have a hamburger and you happen to have a weed allergy, via your inflammatory intestinal cytokines, you can reconcuss your brain all over again because the microglia of your brain is still ripping out neurons due to inflammatory hypoxia. So now you got this massive cascade of things that the brain never really heals. Right. And you got this guy who went his entire athletic career in the NFL, taking 1,500 hits a year. Maybe not all of them are deal breakers, but as a right. lineman, you're getting bonked. You right. got Jello slamming up against the vault. Right. And he's inflamed over and over and over again. By the time he's retiring, he can't even you know remember what you told him five minutes ago. Yeah. And it's it's extremely depressing. For somebody like that, because here they were, that giant that was on top of the world, they get pumped out of the league, and they, their insurance lasts one year, and then they're out there on their own. Right. And if you didn't save, you don't have a retirement plan. You don't have, you know, and there are more people like that than you even know. Yeah. It's, it's it's pretty pretty awesome. But to answer your question, a roundabout you know world of Disney tour that I just took you on. Yes, there's so many different ways to get there, and it's it's just one 
level of stress begets another, and the more layers we layer onto it, the faster and more efficient that that becomes because it's our, our paleo or older brain, that's its reflexive focus. It's a primal brain. Yeah. What are we going to do to live? How are we going to keep the heart beating? How are we going to keep the, right. you know, the and, and that's the thing people don't understand is the way we're designed is to go out and gather things and, and do manual labor and run from a bear like once a month, you know, and, and we're running from bears all the time, yeah. you know, and we're not, our bodies aren't designed for chronic stress, right. you know, and we're, we're designed for instantaneous stress and it's done. You either get eaten or you move on. So, you know, you're, you're depressed, you're, you're, you're basically just you don't know what the hell's going on how did you how did you come out of that and and get to where you are now like what got you into into uh you know chiropractic school and, and studying neurology and all that kind of stuff well they um you know probably some more you know way back story right so i'm working in restaurant because it's really the only thing that i can do um at a, the functioning level that it was at it was basically a functioning alcoholic functioning idiot and putting away a lettuce box one day, you know, lettuce boxes are about 30 pounds, and I'm in the walk-in cooler of the restaurant, and my right arm just caves in, like completely gives out. And I'm screaming at my arm like an idiot to get it to move. And I, there's no, no firing going on, and I knew something was just wrong. And I'm walking around this restaurant, and a friend of the family is there that I've known since I was 12. Happens to be in chiropractic school. And mind you, I've been to Georgetown University Hospital in, in Washington, D.C., and had CAT scans, and their, their advice for the pain was codeinated Tylenol. And I did that for about a month, and I just couldn't live with myself because it's just, you know, yeah, it makes you there. feel like crap. Absolutely. And you just wither away because your liver's getting bombed to crap, and, you know, all that sulfation gets jammed up. And then you can't process alcohols that you're drinking, and, you know, you're just barely alive, you know. And she looked at me and said, man, what is going wrong with you? And here I was, a kid, a guy 24, 25 years old, balding and limping and looking like uh, I had no extensor tone in my right arm. And when I look back at that, I was actually having a stroke. Okay, I'm dragging my right leg and my right arm and people are looking at me like, what's wrong with you? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with me now. I was literally collapsing in on myself. The hemisphere that was shutting down was controlling everything that was driving my right side. And um, so she said, you've got to let me work on you. And I said, you're a quack because then you should go back to school. And um, she said, yeah, well, that might be, but they want to drill holes in your head. And she goes, so what do you got to lose? And right. I said, well, you got a point there. Right, right. So, you know, about a month later of her trying to convince me because I was just not going to go, she adjusted me um, showed the x-rays and saw how torqued I was, compression fractures in my neck and uh, all kinds of twists going on, a, 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 an impacted low L5 that was tweaked and torqued and um, just just squashing every bit of my nervous system and she adjusted my neck and the first time it felt like lightning bolts going down in my hand and it freaked me right the hell out. And I was like, that's it, I'm done, I'm not coming back. I mean, I don't, don't know what that was, but that was not cool. Uh, but what was weird, after I was dodging her phone calls for weeks, I started noticing a tingling in my hand. And I hadn't had that before. Like, it was numb. I felt like I could hit it with a hammer and it wouldn't hurt. And the, the temperature changes, like when, you're, when you see Renaud's, which is that phenomenon where the fingers blanch. I was getting that in the summertime. 
because I was so clammy and so wound up. Wow. Um, so de- so actually suppressed, you know, because our, our output is really inhibitory. We can talk about that later, but I was not inhibiting anything. I was just driving to survive. And I thought, man, I have to give this a shot. So after about a year of off and on care, because I was the worst patient ever, um, I woke up and one day I was thinking, when was the last time I had a headache? And you're talking about a guy who had him daily for almost six years. Right. And I couldn't remember. So I called her up and I said, what do I got to do? And she said, for what? I said, to, to do what you do. And she said, you got to go to Life University. You got to go to chiropractic school. And there was this big block in the way because I failed physics and chemistry and biology, but I had to take those classes. Right. And I was afraid. And luckily, at the same time I was considering that, I was also starting a practice of Aikido and learning breath with movement and circular motion and just not allowing anything to really put me in that fear state. And luckily, those two things together just happened. Know, Happen to happen at the same time. Perfect. And have you have you read the brain that changes itself or fixes itself or something like that? It talks about you know taking these stroke victims and taking them through primal patterns and how they can actually because they used to think the brain was this frozen entity, and now they've shown that they can take people and by taking them into primal patterns and stuff and taking them back to crawling, you can actually reprogram and and rewire your brain. It's 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 fascinating. I believe that, and I will tell you, I haven't read the book. Um, but I know firsthand from the guy that I was taking my, my neurology diplomate stuff from who was asked to come to France. And the, I don't know all of the details of the story, but it's very, very famous if you Google uh, Ted Carrick. He woke a guy up out of a coma by passing his favorite meals underneath his nose. Hmm. And they say the uncus, which is directly related to the nose, is that the nose, the sense of smell is not really a sense at all. It's actually a direct... Uh, attachment to the brain Hmm. it fires so quickly into the temporal lobes that your memory is triggered it's like when you smell a perfume or a smell it takes you immediately there because it's so quickly related and it's how we think primal man could detect poison versus something that was good like the smell or taste of bitter almond you know is a poison and what keeps us alive is our ability to detect what's actually copacetic and what's not right Um, so yeah I totally get that that's that's, that's a real fascinating idea because when you're talking about uncus and hippocampus and all those areas that are leniform and, and, and very old, it's like a total reboot, like building the brain back from the inside out, you know, step by step. And then that crawling reflex, you know, uh, you coincidentally, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things a lot of people don't realize when I treat people, the very first thing I look at is their ability to cross crawl. Because when I see a breakdown in the patterning, I can tell where they are in their breakdown. Define, define cross-crawl. So if, you were, um, if you're looking at a normal, everyday person and you, you, have, you see them in motion, you can see a very predictable pattern from one person to the next. They extend one limb and fire the opposite limb right. in movement. And that, that motion by itself is enough power to generate enough input into the thalamus of the brain to drive it, to, to drive your sensorium like crazy, like the 4th of July. When that breaks down, you start putting like a dimmer switch on your humanity and your body starts to break down very quickly. So if you've ever seen somebody with steppage or slappage gait, for instance, which is uh, very common in some neurodegenerative processes, 
they slide their feet along the floor, yeah, floor because they kind of shuffle. Shuffle, right. Mm-hmm. Or they bump their feet or slap their feet as they walk. Right. Because they're trying to drive as much information about the outside world up into the neuraxis so that their brain can function their bodies. Right. And their brains. Because the less awake they are, um, you know, for instance, uh, I'm glad we're talking about this because we talk about what happens at ADHD. Right. This isn't the only pattern, but when you see a brain that's locked in an uh, attention deficit, it's because it can't attenuate those, re- those primal reflexes. The reflexes are driving. The impulsive behavior is driving, 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 driving. And there's no connection yet in the forebrain to say, look, that's not appropriate. Back down. Throttle down. And in boys' brains, for instance, and there are more ADHD boys than there are females, especially in our clinic, their brain power develops much later in the forebrain than it does in females. Yeah. So um, That explains a lot of my previous behavior. <laughs> <laughs> What the heck were we talking about? <laughs> uh, I think we were talking about how you got into chiropractic school oh, okay. and we got yeah. off on a tangent. Yeah. yeah, I do that a lot. Sorry. That's okay. Um, it's a good conversation. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's funny because when you asked me if we would, when we did this, um, where we were going to do this podcast, I actually started writing down a timeline. Right. And I lo- all those days I lost have really interfered with my ability to keep a cogent you know, <laughs> way of talking. So I'm glad I wrote some of it down, but I'm, I had to ask my wife for some help because it like, when, what happened? When, when did this happen? So, uh, yeah, it's still funny because as higher functioning as I've become over the years because of what I do chiropractically and through neurofeedback and exercise, it's still there's still residue there that if I don't take care of it, it's going to come even back, you know, full scale. But yeah, chiropractic school is one of those things that was the next natural logical step. And thanks to studying Aikido and learning how to breathe through things and learning Zen Buddhist meditation and interweaving these three things, I will tell you that I was scared to go into those classes and it kept me vigilant and I studied. And for well, the one thing I noticed that was different, I was awake when I studied. And I was able to focus without my eyes crossing. And my whole mentality started to change. You start seeing the, the, you know, the benefit of your, of your efforts going positively. It starts changing your entire nervous system. It was like being a kid again. Right. You know? And feeding that, you want to do more of it. You know? It's like giving the brain a cookie. Yeah. In neurofeedback, we give the brain a cookie. And... When it's a favorable response and the brain keeps hitting those positive thresholds, it keeps wanting to do that. So those bad motor patterns or those, those, uh, those, those horrible behavior patterns that we tend to struggle with, and we start giving them other alternatives, these, you know, the kids that we work with, it's like giving that brain a cookie, and it's like, yeah, I want to do that. Right. That so, was good. So they don't get locked into one pattern. Yeah. Or one, the same with movement, you know, get stuck in one pattern give it some variability and, yeah. and then there's a happier brain. Oh, absolutely. And it rewards you tenfold. You know, you're, you're, you're basic, you're, you're really inputting little bits at a time, but the, the payoff is huge. It's like dollar cost averaging. You, and the thing about this is even in times when you're low, you've got to keep investing in your, you know, in your efforts because you do, you have dropouts. Your brain isn't like, Woo-hoo, we're happy now. Right. So you still have dropouts where you have to say, okay, I know it's going to pay off. There's a great book written by George Leonard uh, called Mastery, and it's a day read. But he talks about one of the things that we do as a society is we give up our quest when we start hitting plateaus. Right. And you open up the average person's closet and you see rollerblades and tennis rackets and all the other trappings of, you know, 
exciting things, but the minute the results don't come, people will go for the next new shiny thing. Right. And that's in relationships. That's in, you know, you see people turning their head when they're bored with their spouse, but they're not reinvesting in themselves to understand, hang in there on that plateau because there's going to be another peak at some point. It's just like with strength training or with anything. And you look at most of the people that are super, super successful. You know, they've failed multiple times. They've had times in their life where, and I've certainly have had this myself, where you just get up and you're like, what the hell am I doing this for? You know, and then all of a sudden you just hang on long enough and then all of a sudden you get that. Or the girls that I work with, you know, they're stuck at a certain a certain weight or, you know, they're not making the progress that they that they need. But, you know, uh, improvement isn't just doesn't continue to, to just get better and better. It, you know, you're going to have ups and downs and, so, you know, you're going to go sideways sometimes. And and that, that's something I think a lot of people just don't understand. I mean, there's right. you just can't get, you know, you, you just can't get better and better and better all the time and you can't win all the time. Right. I mean, we have that, you know, um, what's weird is you see it now in the sport fields with, um, you know, kids that are three years old playing soccer, you know, um, we'll talk about that a little bit more in depth, but you, when you, when you see these parents on the sideline that are, that are pushing their kids into this at such an early age and there's no joy. Yeah. The kids are not joyfully doing this. They're kind of at eight thirty in the morning. They're just surviving. <laughs> right. Why is your kid on a soccer field at eight thirty in the morning on a Saturday when right. they should be doing whatever the heck they want at that point in time? Right. And you know, you're you're driving their drive right into the ground because right. they haven't had a chance to, to be playful or joyful about anything. Right. And um, so I want to talk about that because I think that's a huge segue into how I got into lacrosse coaching. Right. Um, but what I did with you know, lacrosse and swimming at that point in my life is I just gave it all up because I couldn't I couldn't focus on my studies and be doing what I wanted to do with the sports, you know, and I, plus I was staying away from the pool like there like there was leprosy giving away and you know, I didn't want anything to do with it. I just hated it that much, you know. Um but chiropractic school introduced me to some really cool things and I'd I'd actually taken some time and moved out west and lived in Berkeley, which is like, <laughs> you know, idea central, if mm-hmm. you want to call it that. Some, you know, people some good, some bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> some in the middle. And the guy's walking down the street with like a toilet bowl thing around his neck and, you know, talking backwards. You know, he's like, wait a minute, this is a little too far for me. But, uh, but the cool thing about that area is it was so inviting for thought. And that if somebody had a new idea about something, they were willing, the people of that area were willing to adopt or try it. Before they put their hand up and say, "No, that's too weird. I don't want to do it," because Berkeley is Berkeley is the capital of weird, and so is the Bay Area. The Bay Area is just, but it's it's fantastic for the same reasons. Some of the best food comes there from there because chefs love going there and creating. Uh, and it's like, hey man, it's not traditional. It's not you know chilies. It's this. And um, so I had a chance to catch up and start my neurology studies because all the kids that I that I met on the East Coast that went out to the West, that's what they were doing. This is a brand new program, and it was, you know, called the, it was a clinical neuro program. And just what I was learning about the brain was starting to piece this whole thing together for me. There are three main things, and I I will swear up and down, sideways, left and right, this is how I treat today, that there are three main things that stabilize the nervous system, and therefore, if you can give it to the nervous system, you can get anything out of the body you want. The first thing is oxygen. If your oxygen sat is down below 97%, you're suffering, okay? And you can very quickly test that. Uh, and there's also 
tissue saturation too, but it's harder to measure unless you're doing blood gas studies and things like that. Um, the other thing is blood sugar. Erratic swings in blood sugar are not good for the brain. No. When you dump your blood sugar, you stop making carrier proteins for your amino acids that make your neurotransmitters. So you can't get those amino acids from your digestion across the blood-brain barrier to make your happy stuff. So you have these people with highly inflamed brains because their blood sugar is erratic and therefore they're depressed. And why do you think people who are low in dopamine are craving chocolate like crazy? Because it's one of those things that feeds a false sense of, ooh, ah, good. You know? And then the other thing is activation. What do you do besides the thing you do every day? If you're a right brain thinker, what are you doing on the left side? Because as males, we have a smaller commissure or connection between halves. So therefore, as we get older, if we don't exercise the other side of our brain, literally by tasking with it, that polarity gets wider and the chasm gets bigger and more separate. And this, incidentally, this is why women recover from stroke much better than men, because the commissure is much wider. There are more tracks that share information left to right, so there's more redundancy. So if I wipe out at left hemisphere, the right hemisphere is very quick to peck up. Not so much in males. So those three things, you know, oxygen, sugar balance, and activation of our pathways on a regular basis is what keeps that nervous system happy. Now, your brain would be happy as hell if you just sat in a chair, ate potato chips, and watched TV because that's enough excitement for the brain. brain conserves energy and materials to the point where it loves the lowest state of energy possible. And it, forever it shall be. But once you start moving away from the couch and start doing something productive, You've got to make adjustments to all of those pieces. You've got to look at your fuels. What is your primary source of fuels? How is the brain going to get sugar? Uh, is it going to get it from, I've got too much protein in my diet, so I'm breaking it down into sugar and bombing my liver and kidneys out through gluconeogenesis. Am I pre-diabetic? Do I have way too much sugar backing up and am insulin resistant? You know, there are so many different avenues because everyone's coming at it from a different angle, but... That blood sugar stabilization is so huge because we're so erratically different from person to person to person. And then activation-wise, once we kind of get into a routine in our lives, you can just see them. They're mouth breathers. They just kind of hang in front of the computer with the jaw slack open and their eyes are bombed out because they're staring at a 24-inch field focal distance all day long. Their entire humanity shut down. And back to your earliest question, can you get there otherwise, you know, other than blunt trauma? That's one of those ways that see, I'm seeing every single day. And those people are completely sugar intolerant. They're completely oxygen in debt. And they have zero activation because once you learn a task, your brain waves go boom, right down to twilight. Right. You're no longer in alpha and beta, which are your higher processing brain. You're in theta, which is where your brain is going, wait a minute, isn't it daylight? And that's why it's so important as you get older to learn new things. Yeah. You know, to keep that brain challenged. I think every study on degeneration shows, and when you look at elderly population, and you put a map on the on the table and you say, okay, what are the older people of, the, of these areas like? And you see where weather becomes more inclement earlier in the year, and they have to go inside. And what do they do? They play card games. They do. They play cribbage in the Northeast. I mean, that's a, an incredible game. They play bridge. It's a mouth cal, you know, math calculating game. They're constantly challenging, and they have bridge groups. My parents grew up. I grew up watching them play bridge. Yeah. And it's competitive, and they love that stuff. 
when you go to warmer clients where it seems to settle out, where you're outside more often, and all that stuff is great. You're getting tons of vitamin D, but the brain is not getting its, you know, the, the input it needs. And right. the levels of degeneration accelerate in places where there's less cerebral activity occurring at those as later years. So um, chiropractic school was great. I loved it. Uh, came back to the East Coast because my family's here. Um, thought that I was going to practice in personal injury. Hated every single day of it. <laughs> um, it's gutless and soulless, in my opinion. And other chiropractors will tell me, yeah, but I got lots of but money. But I get paid. That's right. I get money. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to spend a lot more time in court than I will. So I like to live a very simple, you know, Zen-style life where I don't push, go down that road too far where I'm going to make my name, you know, in that I'm going to put my name in with people that are definitely doing, you know, questionable things. So I sabotaged that opportunity and then worked for another couple chiropractors before I finally realized that I hate working with other people. I am not good with others. I do not play in your sandbox very well. <laughs> the same way. So it's, yeah, I've gotten kicked out of so many places. It's not even funny. <laughs> I'll probably get kicked out of my own place here eventually. <laughs> a mutiny. I'll kick you right out. But yeah, it's it's one of those things, and it drives my wife nuts because she's like, I could be part of a larger doctor group and you know yeah. integrate and all that stuff, and half the time my brain is thinking, you know, when somebody's talking, is this a line of bullshit or is this real? Right. And because my the way that I've I've been trained and the way I continue to train myself, I take another hundred hours a year of of neurology and nutrition, just because there's so much new happening every year, and if you're not doing that as a chiropractor. You're living on old stuff. Or any any medical doctor. Absolutely. You know, and that's one of the biggest problems with with medical doctors is, um, you know, the number of people that come in here that are on statin drugs and still telling, you know, they're telling their patients to eat a, you know, a low-fat, you know, high-carbohydrate diet and, and just, it's, it's just insane. They just, they're so far behind on practical knowledge. And part of it is they don't learn that stuff in school. No, you're they right. Don't, they don't take nutrition. You no, know, you're so. right. And if they do, it's really an elective. Right. And they a lot of guys just get whatever they can. But I'm 100% with you. I mean, why take nutrition advice from a guy who doesn't follow it himself? Right. I'll, I'll send patients to an orthopedist sometimes. And, you know, now let me just, the caveat here is I think everyone who gets into healing at whatever level it is initially has the greatest motive. Intentions. Intentions. I don't ever besmirch, you know, one specialty to another. There are people in my own specialty that don't think the way I think, and we all probably think we're all idiots, but um, just the way from my mindset, when somebody's giving exercise advice and they don't exercise themselves, it's kind of, how do you know? You know, how would you know if you've never done it? Right. And, um, I mean, there are some, there are some, extremes out there okay and we don't have to label them but there are some extremes out there where you just look at it and go well that ain't right <laughs> and you know how does high i'm gonna say it how does high volume of that exercise do anything for you except ruin your ruin your shoulders and drive your cortisol up yes but um and you know what i'm talking and we've about. discussed this many many times okay cool <laughs> and we've seen it and watched it for years <laughs> so uh you know i i, th- I really think that if you're not investing in your own education yeah you know even if there's no immediate payoff right you should do it just because right because there there's something this year i guarantee you i'm going to learn that they didn't even know two years ago when right. i was in the same same class well look at look at look at the the microbiome look at you know like if you googled like you know five years ago if you said leaky gut 
you were laughed out as a quack. Sure. And now, all you go on PubMed and type in leaky gut, it pulls up you know all sorts of studies, and they're looking at the, the microbiome. And while we're talking about the microbiome, we're going to go way off course here. Um, I remember when, when I first met you, I was working with a swimmer. And you told me about how important it was for swimmers to take probiotics. Sure. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Because I, I, I know that's not something that I'd even ever thought about. Well, there was a, um, you know, being a swimmer myself, um, it, we don't have to rehash all that again, but I'll tell you, I lived with upper bronchial infections. Uh, every summer I would get a pretty bad one, and in spring I had another one. So I lived with, and it was always at the end of a competitive season, and that I never knew what the causal link was until years later I'm reading an article on um, children and upper respiratory infections and colds, people getting colds in August. And it just so happened at time perfectly with the end of the swimming season. The end of August, closing down the pools, and kids are sick. And the, the supposition here is that due to the fact that you're, being, you're imbibing in chlorine. Yes. Now, when you have a water treatment system, what do they bomb the bacteria with? Bromine and chlorine and anything else that can bleach out the, the, all the stuff, and then they reconstitute the water to make it palatable or usable. Um, well, what do you think it does to your gut when you're a swimmer and you're swallowing water, whether you realize it or not? Your water's in your mouth all the time. You're spitting water out at your friends if you're goofing around. You're showering in it. You're drinking in it. When I was a kid, you drank chlorinated water from the tap because that's what was available. Now we have bottled water which is leaching all kinds of chlorine products from those bottles because of weird warehousing. We don't know what happened to those bottles after they left the factory. So the water, Or if, if the bottled water is even nothing other than tap water. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't have to name labels, but there are those that have gotten busted for that because it's just a runoff from making another product. So let's just capitalize on that market, right? So. You know, the probiotics are something that I didn't start myself until about eight years ago. And I was at a uh, Transformation Enzymes conference, and my shoulders were so gappy from just being hyperextended my whole life. And then when my son was born, he used to sleep in the crook of my elbow. So laying on my shoulder was separating my AC joint like crazy. But no matter what I did, manipulation-wise or anything, I couldn't get it to heal. And one of the guys at the conference tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, man, why don't you try? You're making me nervous doing this because I was gyrating my shoulder trying to get yeah. it comfortable. And, and you're slightly hypermobile, too. Yeah. Might have something to do with it. <laughs> yep. Um, all that. And uh, so I started taking them. But it wasn't immediate that I noticed a difference. It was really, you know, the first year, okay, I'm just going to pay it forward and keep going and see what happens. Uh, it wasn't until the second year when I started taking them that I no longer had that upper bronchial thing. And this is years after I left the pool. Right. Because when you wipe out your gut biome, it's permanent. Right. What mama gave you is the best. You know, and coincidentally, if you're going through a C-section process, you're not getting the soup of the stuff that you need to get. Or if you weren't breastfed like I was. Right. And what does, what does breastfeeding do? But it causes the junctions between the cells of your gut to close down after 15 months. It's open, it's wide open for the first 15 months of your life. And when that 15th month comes along, if you're breastfeeding, triggers the closure of those elastin elements in the, in the gut to close down those cell junctions so they become impermeable. Meanwhile, you're getting all those immunoglobulins from your mom, 
and the bacteria that you took in from the outside world is creating your gut biome and once that's gone we can artificially simulate it but it's not never going to be as good as, as good and it's going to take a people always ask me how long do i need to take probiotics dude i'll tell you i've been taking them for seven years and i don't have any plans to stop and when i take them i feel good and that's all i know and all the reading I've done, I mean, of course, I know more about it than that, but just basically telling you that if I lead by example, I don't sell a darn thing that I don't do myself. Right. And if I sell a probiotic to you, we rotate probiotics because you do adapt to populations of Planodophilus and Acidophilus and all of these, you know, Bifidus bacterium, highest in population, you need these other ones like the, the Bulgaris and Salivaris and things that you don't get in high rep. So you have to rotate your stock and take different ones throughout the course of your life in order to have a good gut biome, in my opinion. yeah. Or be outside and do all sorts of stuff outside and throw dirt eat, in your mouth. Eat, eat different fermented things, and people just don't do that anymore. We're so mm -hmm. sterile, and we aren't outside and right. all that kind of stuff. So so basically, you know, you told me to make sure that swimmer was on a, on a probiotic because she was in... In the, in the pool all the time and that was just that really kind of just was like wow you know that makes that makes total sense to me so why don't we get into so what are you doing now I know we had Chris Freeman on on the show and um, he uh, you know he did that is it neural neural feedback yep. right yep. he did that neural feedback why don't you explain to people what that is how it works and um, how you've integrated it into your practice okay um, Real quickly, I got into it because I was teaching seminars. Um, I was doing continuing education seminars. One of the things that that you'll know about me is that I'm very passionate about sharing information. Yes. And I had a, I worked with a guy who saw that I don't care if it's 180 people or 400 people in an audience. I'm going to crack a joke. We're going to have fun. I want to make this exciting. I want to give you something you can take back to your practice and use. Mm -hmm. You don't have to if you don't want to. No harm, no foul. But here's what I know. And... So I was doing seminars for this, for a guy in who's in Hilton Head, South Carolina. And he had um, a very autistic member of his family. And uh, it, was, it was autism, I believe. It was a form of autism. And he was looking into different ways in which he could access this child's brain without drugs. Mm -hmm. Because they're, you know, they're thinking of it as bombing the brain with everything they could in order to keep it, you know, on wheels, training wheels. And he discovered that there was this there was this therapy that was as old as the Apollo missions. And it started out before um, the Apollo missions when they were experimenting on cats and trying to figure out if you could train a cat to do something via brain response, giving it a threshold, almost the Pavlovian type of thing. And then the study kind of tanked because there was no funding for it. It was like, yeah, that's cute, but you know, whatever. And then NASA has the most amazing bank of scientists, especially at that time, and discovered that their astronauts were passing out in the capsule because of rocket fuel leaks. They were actually going into spasm. Their, their brains were actually going into like a tremor. And they were having a hard time. You can't do that in space and function in aircraft. You can't right. go into a, into his tetany. So they asked this group of guys, and you can't load them up on drugs either. No. So... They asked this group of scientists after finding this research and saying, hey, would you be interested in testing this out? So they packed a room full of these cats, you know, mercilessly so, and, you know, hit it with this uh, rocket fuel and determined that the cats that had the previous brain training called SMR uh, actually lived. 
And the, the cats that died had no training whatsoever. So the control was showing that these cats were able to actually continue to function even with stress in their, in their systems. Hmm. So their brain waves were more predictable in patterning. And therefore, the field of bio-neurofeedback was developed. And it's, there are a lot more stories about who plugged into it and grabbed it and t- you know, tugged it. Sure. But as soon as pharmacology figured out that they could also access this group of patients, that's when you see a lot of the pharmatropic drugs that, that jump on the planet. And, and tr- nootropics and all right, that. Right. Yeah. We're going to treat the, the, the xenos. We're going to treat all of the, you know, every symptom you have, we're going to, you know, use a different type of combination of thing, which are, a lot of them are derivatives of cocaine. Uh, particularly Ritalin. So um, I thought it was fascinating. And I thought for my own brain that I needed to see what the damage was. So I did a brain map and found out my occipital lobe was literally squashed. And this is years after. And I've been, I graduated, I've been practicing and doing, you know, teaching other people. And my occiput is just not able to function like the rest of my brain. It's not even talking to it. And that's your multitasker. Sure. You know, of course, it's vision. But, you know, and I do have an astigmatism, but it's, you know, it's where you get squashed and all of a sudden you, it starts triggering, aha, I understand why I am that way. And I thought, what a great thing that I could bring to other people and started teaching seminars for Guy because he and his brother and I were friends and we started trying to think, well, maybe we could custom craft some nutritional supplements because that's a, a, another thing I'm actually really heavy into as far as understanding how the brain works with nutrition. And so we, we had those dialogues and it kind of fell apart. I was more interested in how do we get this therapy into the hands of people? And the company was a fledgling at the time and he started doing this one-man roadshow by himself. And I jumped in and helped him. I was teaching in 18-hour seminars in Nashville and going to Long Island. And so we were all over the place. And sure enough, we started collecting a, a group of doctors. And there's a forum and everything. And, and I realized that we needed to bring one of these units to our own practice if we were going to really embrace it. And we used one of my partner's sons who was struggling with ADHD and he was medicating himself with, with uh, substances and stuff and put him through a program and not like immediately, but it was light and day what his brain was able to do. Wow. We put him through 20 sessions initially, and then he did some maintenance sessions along the way. And his his behavior went from, you know, kind of checked out to really with it, to being a loving kid, to being a kid who was responsible, who was responsive. And those are the things that they talk about in commercials with behavioral modification type of stuff, programs and stuff. I really think that if you give the brain more things to do in a positive fashion, it's going to be attracted to that. Because that's what gives it its greatest reward. I mean, that's back to Pavlovian times, right? But that's how exactly, it's, it's operant conditioning is basically what neurofeedback is based off of. So if you can save an astronaut in space, you know, and he's surrounded by toxic fumes, and you can save a kid who's struggling with attention deficit, right now we're seeing kids that have high levels of autism. We're seeing kids that have depression, anxiety, adults that have anxiety. I've got a soccer player who's had more than 15 concussions who was afraid to leave his house. He's got such deep anxiety. So, you know, initially you travel to that person's place and try to get them, and then eventually they start coming in the middle of the day when nobody else is there. And then as they progress, they're starting to come any other time. And you start seeing their shoulders are lower, their face is brighter, they're, they're smiling. Not, they're not in that stress state. 
Yeah. So and what is it? What is it? What does it involve? So neurofeedback is. Um, it really, there's two phases. The first phase is a, a, the brain map, where we take a, something that looks like a swim cap or a polo cap, mm-hmm. and it has 12 leads on it, and each lead represents 25 to 50 million neurons. It's about a, the size of a quarter. So it's sensing. There's no input to the brain. It's just sensing what's happening. And those, those 12 areas represent the major lobes of the brain. So you have them in the back, the sides, the top, and the front. So you look like something out of like Poltergeist or Hellraiser or whatever. The, you know, yeah, the Hellraiser. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah good, I'll never forget that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm good at stuff like that. <laughs> so we do, um, we actually trace what happens in the brain. Uh, through different wavelengths that we test it through. So what happens to the brain when we're actually getting it to test, or when its eyes are open and closed? And what frequencies are most active during those times? And you've got four main frequencies, four main brain wavelengths, sorry, that you're actually dealing with, alpha, beta, theta, and delta. And when the eyes are open, you're really expecting a lot more you know, beta activity because it's learning and active. When it drifts into uh, a theta activity, either the patient's not stimulated or their brain is just dropping out and they're fatiguing and they've bonked. They've either run out of act- activation, their blood sugar's sideways, or their oxygen level is off. And a lot of times it's a combination of all of those. All of the above. Right. <laughs> exactly. So what neurofeedback actually focuses on is after we've assessed the brain wave, that gets dumped into a pool of about 50,000 other maps that are rotated all the time from all over the world as a data bank. And based on those brain maps, we receive protocols, things that we would want to address. And here's what we do. we got four protocols to try. And we try the first one because then the population or group you know, recording results, this is what we should do. When this is upregulated and this one's downregulated, we want to swing them the opposite way so they talk better to each other. And when a brain talks better to each other, there's no chatter. There's no dysfunction in a way or confusion. It becomes more efficient. Right. But if you have a super high-functioning area of the brain that's going nuts, and you got a low area that's saying, huh, what? The brain is so scattered and confused. A lot of times those people can't move out. They're stuck. They can't move out of a gear. And so is it, that's how I explain it. It's like literally putting the car back into first gear and then driving it for a while. Right. And right now that's, that's assessing that, okay, this person's oxygen sat was normal blood. What's their diet like? Those are some of our other challenges because we can't really see what people are doing at home. Sure. Um, but those are things that do limit it because when you when you run out of fuel, you bunk. But even just giving activation where there was no activation before really increases its functioning to a higher level and you start seeing immediate changes. And it's really, really cool. But the, the part B of it is then we take um, two nodes that are placed over directly over the scalp and they know that you know, transcutaneous assessment is very possible. As a matter of fact, that's what it's based on. Can you put an output from the brain and have it read through the skull and skin? And the answer is undefiable, yes. And so you see them actually triggering on the computer. There's a there's like a bio readout. And as the those bio readouts are occurring, you can set different frequencies or sorry thresholds that you want the brain to attend to attenuate and when it hits that threshold a task appears so let's say we're tasking a movie and we don't want to make it super frustrating where they drop out a threshold and boom the movie shuts off but that's how they used to do it 
what we want to do is we want to have the brain stay in threshold within a certain gray area to keep the movie on. And then as it stays in threshold, it gets brighter and the sound gets louder so they can see and hear more of it. And that's the cookie. So the very first few times you're doing this is very conscious effort to get this focus. And the, the, the only command you're giving the person is just make the movie play. Because if you give them too many things to do, right. you know, you're going to drop. So if they're wearing goggles or something. Uh, not, initi- not, not at this point. Not initially. They're actually sitting in front. Of, we have a couch. Okay. That actually has tactile, vibratory okay. sense, too. Okay. So they, it gets another, especially the kids that have severe ADHD, it really, every time they're in threshold, it gives them a vibration. Oh, okay. All right? So it drives the nervous system and gives it a lot of, sh- you know, showers the, you know, the crap out of the brain. Right. And the brain goes, oh, cool, do that again. Right. So in that instance, they go through a 20 to 30 minute session. Okay. And then you mark it, the value. Now, okay. what you're talking about are the AVE. Those okay. are the audiovisual entrainment okay. classes, which are the bridge between sessions. Okay. That's what I like to think of it as. And what you get to do is take this, these uh, flashing goggles and earphones and the AVE unit itself, which can actually produce different feedback tones into the brain, depending on what you're trying to do. Are you looking to sleep? Are you looking mm. to get into alpha and do more meditative type of stuff? Are you trying to get more alert and awake? Are you, are you getting ready to give a presentation? We should okay. ramp up beta. So this is almost like the binaural beats type stuff that they've got. Yeah, on steroids. Yeah, just on steroids. That's cool. Okay. So, you know, other than Chris telling me about it, I really didn't know that much about it. So it starts off with just some some cues from you Uh and using the couch and all that kind of thing to get the results that you want and you can measure. Right. And then you progress into the the goggles. Right. And and is this something that, uh, you know, people have to do continuously or over time do they just get... Uh, good enough that they don't need it anymore. There's some people that need maintenance forever. Well, yes and yes, um, and that's uh, you know very vague. But I'll tell you, there's um, you know immediate early gene expression in neurons in the brain will tell you that every time you fire a neuron, if it's supported, it'll fire again. And as it c- continues to fire and it's supported, it will develop plasticity, which is like a handshake that won't let go. Right. And the stronger those roots become, the more definable the pathway. And so that is permanent. You can't break that away. So we're creating definable pathways in a very positive sense. And what we're trying to do is give people tools that they can do. Now, you know, chiropractic in and of itself, the, the basic definition of what it is is actually enhancing the nervous system's recognition of itself. That's really what it is. We're not really... In the spine, you got five layers of muscle. Unless right. you have a badly rotated vertebrae, you're not putting a vertebrae back in place. Sorry, right. that's not how it works. Maybe in the smaller joints you are, wrists, elbows, shoulders, ankles, feet, what have you, nasal, concave, whatever. Yeah, you can move those things because they don't have as much around them. But what you're doing when you're adjusting is you're actually creating a kinesthetic awareness of what should be happening in that area movement-wise. And the brain supports that by showering it with support by via musculature or, you know, increased feedback loops. So you're just giving the body a little help to do what it should be doing on its own. Absolutely. Removing the impediment and okay. letting the body do really what it's supposed to do. Right. You know, you're breaking a vacuum. You're getting it to, you know, go in a place where it wasn't going. Okay. If you need 360 degrees of input and you're only getting 180, think about what that does to the nervous system. It's like, what the hell is going on with this right. person? 
where are we? Slappage gate, steppage gate. I need more information, more input. Right. So, and that's, uh, you know, when you have a kid with ADHD and their brain's falling asleep and they see the sun's up, the circadian rhythm is so flip that they get impulsive because they're trying to wake their brain up. Gotcha. Tapping a pen, they're fidgety, they're dropping stuff. These kids are extremely bright. Right. And they'll get through a test before anybody else and then have to sit there and wait for the teacher to say, it's okay to get up and move at some point. Right. Or you need to sit there and wait for everybody else. That's like a death sentence for a kid whose brain is just like, I need to do on, something. On hyperdrive. Yeah. Right. Bored, basically. Exactly. Bored. And, and our modern school system just crucifies those kids because you got to sit there, yeah. be quiet. You can't, you know, and, and, and most of the teaching stuff is so gummed down. These super bright kids just get bored out of their brain. Right. So what type of, you know, what kind of conditions have you seen results with this? Um, and, you know, w w what kind of person would you recommend giving this kind of treatment for? And how, how can you access this kind of stuff? Well, the cool thing is, is that um, in general, if we just improve your brain health, mm -hmm. period. Right. If we just make it more efficient at what it does, then it applies to everybody. Okay. Because everybody has some level of degeneration or slippage or there's a, uh, a dominance that needs to be leveled out or at least a recessive side that needs to be picked up. So everybody can benefit from it. Um, you know, it's the the real extreme cases that we've seen with PTSD, with you know, people with hyper anxiety, with really chronic depression, pain syndromes. It's not that every the treatment is exactly the same for each one of those. Right. But there are predictable patterns of expression that we can see, and it may be labeled as depression, but it may just be an underfunctioning temporal lobe. So the body can't throw the information from memory into action. So the person is, you know, beyond frustrated and, you know, the output is depression. Gotcha. So we're looking at where is this manifestation coming from? So instead of treating these particular, which we really can't, you can't treat a headache. But I can tell you why you're potentiating that. Because the potential is that you're not getting enough cerebral blood flow or your brain is busy tasking on something and it's driving that part of the nervous system that's ramping up your blood pressure. Right. You know? So, you know, we could say, okay, we need to pull you out of primal brain and get your cerebrum to, counter, to, to really interact with this area of the brain. And, wow, all of a sudden you took the thorn out of the shoe and, you know, you see the shoulders come down. You see the eyes open wide and you're like, wow, I didn't realize... What the, what it's like to feel good for the first time. Right. I've been feeling crappy for so long. That was my norm. Well, it's like the, the, the stuff we do with people with breathing. You know, when they exhale, finally, they've been so stuck in this, like, you know, extended, holy shit, I'm going to die state. <laughs> and then you finally get them to exhale, and they completely relax. It's like we've actually had people cry. I mean, I know it sounds really weird and voodoo tinfoil hat and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, people, when they finally exhale, or even for myself, when I finally was able to, you know, get out of that being stuck in that extension mode and we're like, wow, I can actually relax. Because I remember when I got ultra colitis and I started trying to meditate and I literally couldn't sit still for 10 seconds, mm -hmm. you know, and it took me a year to be able to meditate for a whole hour, you know, because it was torture for me. And, you know, that's one of the things that float tanks really helped me with. Um, well, right before you, before you go on to something else, remember what yeah. you're about to ask me, but that point, what you're talking about, that catharsis, mm -hmm. is, is very real. And I've seen it where 
there's an esoteric form of chiropractic called um, um, network, okay? And it's just working with the pia and the dura matter, it's light touches and respiratory waves and trying to get people to unwind. And you can be on the table for two hours. I went to a guy like that for seven years because I was so corked up, like you're saying, you know, it couldn't sit still for 10 seconds. Yeah. Um, and what ended up happening is I went through a period where my body just went into shutdown, total tetany. And it took about 45 minutes to break that at some point because the respiration become so shallow. And you think that, you know, just because we're a body that we don't store memory in every cell. But your somatic cells, your, your tissue outside of your nervous system is made up of the same type of tissue. And your nervous system touches everything. So where you start to release pressure or compression within the nervous system or the deeper, deeper neural tissues from the somatic side of the equation, yeah, you get a release. And a lot of times it's deeply emotional. And there are people, like you said, that'll weep, that'll cry, and they'll have those big, heavy sobs, and it's like, whew, you can see another piece of that onion skin yeah. just fall off. That's a great analogy of the onion. Yeah, and it's, the more they do it, it's funny, because I swear to you, I was in Mexico doing some volunteer work, and I couldn't speak the language to save my life, but except to order a beer and go find the bathroom. Right. And... I will tell you that people will come and sit down on the table and I couldn't do anything for them except hold their hand while they riddled off all of the things that were wrong with them. You could see swan neck deformities in these people's hands from really hardcore arthritis. And all I'm doing is holding this lady's hand and watch her limp in to see me and strut walking out because she was able to just have some human contact and then dump it all. Right. And then literally walked out of there with a, with a nice cadence, not like, you know, going to go power walk, but way different than she walked in. Yeah, and I, then, I think in the medical profession there's this um, kind of denial of how much emotions and how much, um, you know, that sort of stuff plays a part in, in, in the nervous system and, and in your health in general. Sure, because we piecemeal it. You know, the elbow guy is different from the knee guy. So they're all looking at the same person, but they're, you know, if, hey, if I go to a podiatrist and I've got foot pain, then, you know, well, if it's above the knee, he doesn't handle it. Right. Okay. But, but I'm going to... More than likely, what's causing the foot pain is above the knee. Right. Yeah. But I'm going to, I'm going to put something in the shoe. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a minute. You got back pain now? I got a guy. And then the back pain guy goes, oh, well, you're squishing your disc. So we're going to consult you for this. Oh, wait a minute. We fixed your hip, but now your shoulder hurts on the opposite side? So it's, 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 it's a comedy of errors that I still to this day don't understand because one guy doesn't talk to the next or cooperate. Right. But when people say, look at me and I go, I'm doing a global gate analysis on you. I'm going to video you so you can see it. And 90% of the time people are like, holy crap, I didn't realize I moved like that. Yeah. One side pinned down while the other side is whipping around like crazy because you're literally stuck in the mud and you're just trying to widget your way out of. And that's every day. Right. And then how do I treat a base, retest that over and over again to say, are we getting back to the cross crawl reflex, right? It's the oldest myelinated or insulated reflex you have in your entire body from, from toes to head. You're born with it. You're conceived and in week 17, you got it because your nervous system is in play. And the way you stop your neurons from being pruned out is you fire that reflex like crazy. And that is the first thing that allows you to push up and look at the world. Okay, because 
you either crawl towards sustenance and away from danger or you die. So literally you are programming this, this little baby that popped out has within it the only myelinated system that allows it to survive. Which then as they get more introduced to gravity, the heart rate comes down. You ever wonder why an infant's heart rate is 160 beats and they come out and over time it starts to drop? Gravity. Because gravity is firing a new system that now allows for that sympathetic survival mode to be mitigated. It says, okay, look, now I've got something above that that rains down on it and says we've got new input. And the world is okay. It's safe. And it inhibits those pathways and says, okay, we can lower blood pressure. We can lower our heart rate. Our vascular tone is going to change. Our flexor tone is now giving way to, to extensor tone because we can, we can inhibit those things. So the outflow, the overall outflow of our nervous system is inhibitory, not excitatory. We modulate our output. And that's when we start losing the modulation through loss of kinesthetics, oxygen. You know, we talked about that over and over again. That's when you see a ramping up of all those dysfunctions. No, you don't need a pill for your blood pressure, bro. You need to get out and walk. And swing your arms, by the way. And stop eating 300 grams of refined carbohydrates a day. Amen. <laughs> so we've gone through a lot of stuff, uh, but let's get into, you have all this information about the brain sure. that you've given us a, just a smidgen of. Um, how have you integrated this knowledge into how you coach kids in lacrosse? Well, I squashed soccer from my kids and had to learn the hard way not to do that anymore. And uh, I remember my wife used to volunteer me, and she's graciously decided not to do that anymore because <laughs> it's put me up against the wall where I really don't know what the hell I'm doing with soccer. And the expression was, well, it doesn't matter. They're just like cats, and you're hurting them. Right. And to me, I just have, had this guttural disagreement with getting these kids to do drill after drill after drill. When they should be just playing. Right. And um, one day... Uh, it was after one of those 8.30 in the morning games that should never happen. And I was just beat down, tired. And the kids were beat down, tired. And my wife took the kids, and I went to Starbucks because I was like, I need something just to get me through the rest of the morning. i got a lot to do. And I'm in the line, long-ass line. And I start Googling killer instinct in kids because I'm still in that mindset of how am I going to get my kids to stop following the pack and go after it? And here I am thinking, you know, what's wrong with my kids? How come they don't have that killer instinct? And out comes this blog. I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a, a professional soccer player turned referee, and he'd been all over the world. And his take was the following. He said, the number one problem we have with our kids, why the U.S. does not produce enough quality strikers, is we don't have a need for them. Because the kids that are the best strikers from other countries are the fastest kid who may have the only ball on the block. And he gets to keep it because he's running faster than the others and he has the ball in developing those skills. And that kid ends up being the head guy on the soccer team. And all the other kids, when they finally get the ball, have to develop their yo-yo skills like Ronaldinho. Right. And where it's all play for him. And I'm watching Brazil one day, and this is recently, and I'm watching this guy up at the midfield line and he's being swarmed and he's literally playing like he's on the field. And he's totally relaxed. Totally relaxed. Shoulders are down. He's moving sideways and as fast as he's moving forward. I'm like, that makes so much sense. And he's like, quit putting kids in, in, in shin guards, running drills with rules and all this stuff, and making them play 40-minute games 
with parents yelling on the sideline at their kid, living vicariously through their kid, quit doing this to them. Because what happens is I was that coach that was doing that to my kid. And guess what? They never wanted to play again. They wanted to please me because that's what your kid will do right. naturally and won't complain except they'll just start dropping out and withdrawing and instead won't tell you what's wrong because they're afraid to disappoint you. And it broke my heart. And I'm sitting there in the drive through line, and I'm like, I might have even had some, like, uh, Karen Carpenter on. I don't know. I'm, like, starting to get emotional thinking, I suck. <laughs> and so I stopped coaching soccer at the time, had a long talk with the boys, and had to let them reassure them, know that I'm there 100% no matter what, you know. And Daddy did the wrong thing, you know. And then I get an opportunity to coach lacrosse at the high school level. I'm a chiropractor in a gym, and... One of my new patients is a lacrosse player, and he found out. He Googled me and found out that I played, and he was like, wow, you're one of the only guys I know that's actually played lacrosse and, you know, knows the sport inside and out because our coaches, they're, you know, he started making up stories about them. He said, hey, will you come out and check us out? And I froze. So I started looking at the U.S. lacrosse website, and I said, what can I do to learn how to coach? Because I knew enough to know I didn't know enough and said, I've got to make this right. If I'm going to do this, I can't go into it the way I was doing soccer. And went through their coaches certification program, and they have something called the PCA, which is the Positive Coaches Alliance Dual Goal Coaching Certification Course. That's a lot of words. <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, people like, like um, uh, what's his name, Jackson? Um, Phil. Phil Jackson, yeah. Brain's freaking out on me now. Eleven Rings, if you haven't read the book, it's phenomenal. He's he's um, one of the greatest Zen-style guys. Everyone talks about it, you know. Um, but his story uh, with the Positive Coaches Alliance has to do with teaching life lessons through sport, especially at the young age. I'm like, how do you do that? You know, and there's this magic formula. You have to compliment genuinely. Mm-hmm. five things about somebody before you can give them one thing to work on. And it's a, a formula that's been proven over and over and over again. Even if it's, hey, man, you tied your shoelaces. And there's a story about baseball with my kid. One day he had a real crappy uh, experience on the field, and his mom you know, wants so much for him to succeed. And she didn't go through the same recollection that I did, so she's coming at it from where I was before. And I said, hold on, let me debrief him, and then we'll get together. And I'm walking with him to the car, and I'm like, hey, buddy, what, you know, tell me about your, your day. And his head's down. And I'm like, no, 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 man, Let's tell me five things you did right. And he couldn't, he said, Dad, I didn't do anything right. And my heart's just breaking all over the place, you know. And I said, okay, well, let's look at it. You, you put your shoes on right. You got your glove. And your bag was packed right. Your, your uniform looks good. You got a belt on. So we're up to four, right? We've got to find one stinking thing he did right in that game. I was like, look, the ball came to you, and you knew what to do with it. And he goes, yeah, and he thought about something else. I'm like, okay, cool. Now tell me one thing that you can do that's different, that we can make better. And put it back on his plate just to say, okay, what's he thinking? And he came up with a great thing. He's like, you know, I could be more focused than when I'm, when I'm on the field. I'm like, great. Let's, let's just think about that, and we're done. Okay, now let's go get ice cream. And I watched him go through that process, and every time we would do the same exercise, he was laying in more things that he did positively that were actually things that he did. And he does it to me now. Like, he'll, he'll ask me, he'll say, 
Dad, what are the five things that I did right? So rather than me being the guy constantly telling him, he's involved in the conversation. So I started applying that to lacrosse. And I said to my players, what are five things you're looking to get out of this? Like, why are you doing this? What's your why? Just like powerlifting. Right. What's your why? And some of the kids were, it'll break your heart because in high school, you're getting freshmen that have never touched a lacrosse stick sometimes. Not anymore so much. But here I was coming from a powerhouse in the East where lacrosse was in everybody's hands. So a place where you got kids who played Dungeons and Dragons that were made fun of, that are doing Quidditch out in the woods with fake broomsticks, you know, because it's Harry Potter time. Sure. But they're like, I want to do this because, it, you know, it's a sport. And I'm told that, you know, I can get on this team. <laughs> and then I got guys that were like, they played basketball and have athleticism like crazy, but just can't, and have field vision, but just don't have the mechanics down. And the very first day, I show up with, with basketballs. And I tell them to take their gear off. And the other coaches are looking at me like, what the F are you doing, man? <laughs> you got a junior varsity program you got to get up. And I said, leave it alone. Let me do this. And I had them moving around, talking to each other and joking and having a good time. And their heads were up. They were looking at each other. And they couldn't pass a basketball from one person to the next. I'm like, dudes, if we can't pass a basketball, don't you see we've got to get that down first before we can get to a smaller ball? before we layer on equipment, before we start doing things that, you know, are so technically oriented. And we literally layered on back, you know, the onion skin again, one layer at a time. And by the end of the season, those kids didn't win a single game. But they were playing like a team, and kids that were not, had, weren't able to touch a ball and scoop it were possessing the ball better than the varsity team was. And I had varsity kids wanting to drop down and play with my kids because they were having so much fun. You know? Yeah. And they lost their last game by in overtime. By a you know, sudden death, they lost a face off. It went right down, the guy scored. But my kids ran out on the field like they'd won and grabbed their goalie and hugged him and pat you know, passed him over the top and we had to post game huddle and they're like kids were like, I've had so much fun. I've never had this much fun. That's awesome. And you win. I don't care, we lost the game. Who cares? But the kids were you know, I had the varsity kids that had come down to play that had smiles on their face for the first time because they were told that they were dirt, that they were screwing up, that they were horrible. And my kids were telling each other that, man, you're doing good, keep it up. You know, get the ball over here. Okay, put it up, you know, coaching each other on the field. I mean, how, how do you get kids who don't know each other and have totally opposite spectra to, to work together, you know, if you don't give them an opportunity to relax into it? Right. And um, so after a couple of seasons of that, our philosophies just parted ways because we started getting more experienced kids up, and I understood. So I was like, look, it's probably better that you guys take the team and I'll go do something else. And I had an opportunity to um, assist with taking over a youth program. Um, in between those two moments, I actually opened a lacrosse training facility and it bombed after the first year. But in that first year, I coached three middle school teams, a high, two high school teams, and a grade school program. And I had an opportunity to train them through a period of about four months and really got a good sense of where my skill set was best received. And once they get to the middle school level, they're kind of figuring it out for themselves. But if I can get the grade school kids right. 
I, that was my niche. Go through the process that we talked about. You go, you start with the basketball, and then where do you go from that? Like your your uh, your procedure okay. for getting them to actually play. I thought that was a genius. Oh well, thanks. Um, well, the for, for, you know who doesn't like to play keep away, right? You know when you're a kid and it's like. Uh, when you and I were kids and we were running, kick the can and doing all that stuff, you know, they don't get that opportunity anymore. But if I can put kids in groups and say, okay, your group yellow and your group blue, and it's you guys, and I give them pennies, and then they throw on the pennies and flip them inside and out or whatever. And then I say, okay, we're actually going to play keep away as an icebreaker so I can watch them move. Right. And it's the coolest thing ever. Because they're not thinking you're doing anything but just letting them play. Right. And I'm kidding. Oh, that guy's got, you know, kinetic issues. This guy has respiratory issues. This guy. And I'm just making notes. And I'm thinking, okay, I've watched him play for two hours. This guy has got zero endurance. This guy's. And then the very next time we get together, we start showing them how to work together, how to keep their eyes up, how to pass with the, you know, how to run with the ball with their eyes up looking for the field. Right. So they know where to put the ball, how to talk to each other. Because when they don't talk to each other, they're stressed out. When the vocalization drops out, their cortisol levels are high. Their fine motor movements dropped out. They're at 170, 180 beats, and all they can see is a tunnel. Right. So we try to start them, or I say, you know, we, like me, myself, and I, I don't know how else to put it, try to get them so comfortable in their bodies with you know, learning how to move. And I'm not kidding you. I mean, the next level is I put a mouth guard in. And they fall apart because now they're, they're, they don't know how to breathe. So we work with that for like a week. And I have them put their, their feet up and I have them breathe in through their nose and out through their mouth and just tell me where they feel their breath is. Right. And 90% of them, you look, they got rib cage flare, they've got arched backs, they've got total head and extension, and their legs start to shake because they can't, you can't use both sets of muscles hip flexors are totally locked up and they're sitting all day and they also come from other sports where they've been just drilled like crazy and put into hyperextension because now they're hypoxic and it's just well that's the only way they can survive yeah because they haven't they don't haven't developed a good base of movement so they have to go into that extended posture to, to, to you know just to survive yeah and when you look at neurological reflexes that is that's like Babinski that's a total extension Scare a three-month-old yeah Line extension. Exactly. So from there, you just keep adding equipment. Oh, yeah. I mean, you start with the mouth guard, and then we'll, we'll put on uh, the, the you know, taking away some of their fine motor stuff, we'll put on gloves. And just have them run with that stuff. You know, yeah. no stick yet. Yeah. No lacrosse stick, no lacrosse ball. And then we'll have from basketball down to one of those Nerf balls and have them pass around with that stuff. And then they start getting a little edgy because they've got all this equipment. So I'll let them throw it on for a few minutes. And you got to just give them a little bit of cake. And then let them run around with it and be tough guys because every kid that age wants to be a warrior. Of course. They want to be a cowboy. They want to be a warrior. So lacrosse is the warrior sport because you got a stick. It might as well be a sword. So you let them mix it up. Reindeer games, you know. You've got the little buttons and they're going to make them into antlers someday. So you let them do that because then they've got the, oh, cool, i got a chance to use my gear. And then the next time, we, we kind of add another layer. So by the time we put on the helmet, they're not feeling boxed in and claustrophobic, and their heart rate doesn't go through the roof. Right. So and their tunnel vision is, is not in play because you can tell they're relaxed. 
So I get these kids that have never touched a lacrosse ball at age seven or eight. And by the end of the season, I'm saying, parents, you just got to stay with me because they may not get in on every game because sometimes we play games that are way more competitive than they are instructional. And the kids, the other teams are taking it way too seriously. And you don't want your kid laid out like the Matrix on day one. Right. Yeah, let me roll your kid out there like every other sport. And then they get run over, yeah. trucked, and they don't ever want to play again. Instead, I get the exact opposite. I get the kids that are on the sideline like, I want to get in, I want to get in, I want to get in. And they're seeing the same game I am, but just from different eyes. I'm watching this other kid get trucked. I'm like, I don't think so. But there will be games where I will put you in. And I give them, you know, a timeline. It's like, by the end of the season, I'm going to give you this many minutes. And here's how we're going to do it, you know. And everybody's going to try every position. Yes. I cannot that stand. That is so critical. I cannot stand coaches that look at a heavy set kid and put him in a goal. Yeah. I took a kid um, who was being overplayed on defense because he was a bigger kid. And that's what he was being told. You're a defender. I said, do you want to play any other position? I saw him after, after the season was over. And he goes, yeah, I'd like to try offense. I said, come play with me and I'll, I'll get you playing attack. By the end of the season, the last game, he scored four goals. And he was, he was like, wow. And other parents came up to me afterwards and were like, what you did with this kid? Yeah. And I'm like, listen, I just listened to him. Yeah. Well, I've told that story on, on the show before. Like, sports is so much about winning, it's tragic because, you know, you get the kid who's in middle school who's 6'4", and he ends up playing center, and he develops no other skills. Right. And then he goes to go to college, and he's not tall enough to play center in college. And then he can't dribble. He, can't, he could have played a small forward or something else. But he hasn't developed those other those other skills and, and or like baseball same thing you get a kid in eighth grade he pitches great so they pitch the heck out of him and he's got Tommy John before he, he goes to college and you know they should be playing every position but they're so focused on winning they just ruin so many kids and it, it's really sad and most kids don't have the emotional um, development to be hand, to handle the winning and, as, uh, winning and losing aspect of the sport until they're like 15, 16, 17, 18. And they start getting mature enough where they can handle that devastation of losing or, or, or having that adversity. But, it, you know, we've just taken the fun out of it, and that's, that's why so many kids don't, don't make it. Yeah, they don't, they don't have joy in what they're doing. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when you produce endorphins over something, it's the plasticity level is exponential. You know, when you're loading some kid up with high amounts of pressure and you're driving their stress receptors like crazy, it's not something you adapt to. Because let's just say you keep a kid at 170 beats because you're screaming at him and he's running hard. And guess what happens? Your nervous system says, whatever that shit is, we got to stop it. It's killing us. Where's the damn cheetah? Why is it chasing us? Right. And you're, you're looking at a kid whose eyes are wide as saucers. My, my brother-in-law came up last week, two weekends ago, and took pictures of, of kids on this travel team, and I'm watching this kid come down the sideline, and he's freight training, his mouth is wide open, and his pupils are dilated, and every pass he made was ridiculously off target. He tightened up and would not, would, was, had zero accuracy, zero control over his body. No flow. Guess what? He plays hockey the same way. And the one thing about hockey that's brilliant that he started, and I don't know how far they've gotten along with this, is the athlete development model where they've shortened the, the rink. Yes. And they've worked with the shortening the time that the players are on the ice and they rotate more kids in so that the kids get more touches. 
and that it's more about the instructional and also teaching them the fine aspects, like the technical skill aspect of it, without driving their nervous systems into the toilet. Correct. Well, lacrosse is trying to do the same thing. And you're going to see that in the next year or so. And I'm getting more involved with the, the Kentucky Lacrosse Association because the, the motive is from being passed down from U.S. lacrosse that we're seeing, starting to see dropout. We're starting to see, it's not as precipitous as hockey was when they started it, but it's, it's, you know, it's enough to make you wonder, are these kids going to go play to a higher level that won't threaten, you know, is our, our youth program threatened because they don't see the transition into the, you know, there's no fun at this level, so therefore there are not enough kids going into the middle school and high school levels. burned out or injured or exhausted. Exactly. I mean, you play soccer from the time you're four all the way to 18. That's a long time to do anything without a break. I right. mean, half these kids maybe get one week off a year. Right. I mean, uh, it's insane. Soccer has a huge drop rate. Oh, you absolutely. know, and if you don't have the if you don't have the wherewithal to recognize that, you know. Well, well and then how many kids get into soccer at 3 and then don't have the body type for it? Okay. You, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, have just ever, cause, just cuz it's 6 or 7 years old, you can play soccer doesn't mean you're 18, you're going to have the, the same body like it's just insane instead of putting the kid into a sport where his body, I mean, you go to the Olympics, all the athletes in every sport basically look the same because yeah. they've got, a, you know, they've got, you know, Michael Phelps with the super long arms, a short torso, you know, the big propellers. I mean, he's, all those swimmers essentially look the same. There's a little bit of variability in sprinting, but, you know, you either got the short stocky dude or the Hussein Bolt type, so. It's like the Epstein book. He talks about the genetics yeah. and how it, how it combines with the 10,000 hours of purposeful practice and what, what I think Gladwell was trying to talk about and the outliers, you know, there are, you know, when you look at the prototype of, or the phenotype of, for instance, water polo players, they have long ass forearms. Why? Cause that's ideal for whipping the ball. Right. But when water polo first came into being, it was, I'm a swimmer and I need something to do in my off season to keep in shape. Right. And uh, water polo was always its own sport, but it was dominated by these, you know, cross athletes. Now it's becoming so much specialized so specialized that you're seeing the the phenotype start to fan out. All the guys that don't have that phenotype don't play. Right. And it's in lacrosse. It's bad. They talk about the wingspan in basketball. You know, is more important than the height. Yep. Um, and it's if you don't have those things, you know, we could be jamming this stuff down our kids' throats for no reason whatsoever. And with the promise of you know athletic scholarships and going on to pro and all that, don't even get started on that. You're right. So. Yep. 0.000001%. Yeah, and you know, as a coach, your number one responsibility is your player safety. Yeah. And if and, you and don't to develop uh, somebody who knows how to win and lose, somebody who knows how to work as a team, uh, you know, somebody who's competitive, uh, but, you know, and somebody who can be coached, you know, like someone who's a great, a great player that can be co- coached is going to be able to work in a business, you know, and, and accept, accept coaching and accept um, you know, challenges and those sort of things. And that's what really sports is for is to develop that. And we've just totally lost sight of that. Amen, man. That is, that's so important. That is, that is a Phil Jackson moment right there because it's so true. I mean, you think, what is the purpose of this? If the majority of the people that enter in the arena are not going to, you know, get much further than their collegiate response, you know, handling, level. winning, winning and losing, working as a team. I mean, that's basically, and that's why so many businesses hire athletes because they know, how to win and lose. They know how to fight through adversity. Um, that's that's why that's why you play sports to develop those characteristics. And, and unfortunately, we've totally lost sight of that. Yeah, yeah. 
So we, we have bantered. Did you go ahead and finish up <laughs> what you're about to say? We're going on an hour Six hours and 35 yet. minutes. Uh, so. Well, you know, everything you said, you know, regarding the where we're going with sports is it's a shame. It's, it's really a shame because I'm going to see blowback when we try to make those changes, shortening the field and going back to instructional and making sure that the coaches are actually certified. Yeah. Because when the growth of the sport is so rapid that you're just throwing whatever you can at it, that's it not an organization. Like, it sounds like some other organization that we're both familiar with. <laughs> but and not on that. <laughs> yeah, on that, we'll, we'll shut her down. So, Tim, where, where can people um, get in contact with you if they're, if they're wanting to do so? Do you have a website, all that good stuff? Do you yeah. do, do you do seminars? Give me that little spiel. Um, you know, I do as many outreach type of activities as possible. I like to do in-house stuff because I think my niche is really working with athletes, but I also work uh, within environments like gyms. And Mm -hmm. so um, you're going to see me pop up in different places, but you can get me on drtimrogersdc.com. That's my website and there's at the bottom, you can just put your information in and I get back to you. It's the easiest way. and so wherever I'm, wherever I am right now, um, I'm going to be moving uh, within the next month or so. And for the reasons that I, I have so many things I want to do, and so many other people that I want to incorporate into the mix, I want to work, you know, more with you and more with Chris. And if I'm not on this side of town, I'm going to miss out sure. on you know great minds, great ideas, um, you know, working with people at a totally different level. Uh, and uh, that's that's where I'm resting more and going more into that, you know, understanding the power of rest and rejuver- rejuvenation and healing. So, awesome. um, roundabout way of answering your question. That's probably for now until I'm like fully in. Um, that's the best way to get me. Awesome. Right well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. And to be honest, we could probably do this for another three or four hours, <laughs> but there'd be like maybe half a listener left <laughs> at the end. It'd only be me listening to myself because I always go back and listen to the shows just so I can kind of see, you know, things that I can improve on. And on that note, if you have any feedback for me, um, you can reach me at info at jimlaird.com. And I appreciate you tuning in, and uh, we'll get you on here next time. Thank you for listening to The Jim Laird Show on Body IOFM. Listening to the Jim Laird Show with your host, Jim Laird. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. Don't miss the next episode of the Jim Laird Show when he'll probably say something inappropriate but unexpectedly insightful.